there are skills you build in the underworld of your journey, in the grit and the vulnerability, and you can rise and engage with the world through the power and sovereignty that you have built while you've been in a flare, while you've been managing extremely difficult experiences. Welcome to Invisible Not Broken. Today, we're talking about living and dating with a chronic illness, living your authentic self, and much more. Our host, Monica, is joined by Michelle Irving, who lives with autoimmune hepatitis and vertigo. Really excited to introduce Michelle, um, doing incredible work. And one of the things that caught my eye was that she has a discussion about queen of the underworld and how that applies to chronic illness. If you want to just start with what you have, and I really want to get to your map of the underworld and chronic illness. I'm so excited about that. If you want to just start with what you have, that'd be amazing. Thanks so much for having me, Monica. So I have two conditions. I got diagnosed at 35 with a life-threatening autoimmune condition, which affects my liver. And I really ended up in that diagnosis through my vanity. I noticed there were dark circles under my eyes and I I wanted to get them fixed. So I asked my GP about it. That led to a whole journey that most of us have of exploration. Mine was about eight months of trying to diagnose lots of appointments, lots of tests and coming to this very rare autoimmune condition where a protein in my blood attacks my liver as if it's an organ donation. So I'm treated the same way you would treat somebody who had actually had a liver transplant. So my immune system suppressed. That all really came to a head in 2012 when I had tried the treatment and their steroid treatment and immune suppressants and I slept 18 out of 24 hours a day. So it was just untenable for me through the process of treatment. And the advice was, if you don't have treatment, then you'll be terminal within five years. And I was really contemplative about that. I have an academic background in philosophy, so I really went into the ethics of what is the good life for me and what is a good death. And I made the decision that I'll take the five years and I'll do the things that I want to do. I won't get everything I want to do done, but I'll do the things that I want to do. Part of the condition with the liver illness is anybody who works with the liver, you actually don't often know anything's wrong with the liver till it's reached a point that it's actually beyond repair, so to speak. But because the diagnosis was caught early, I felt fantastic off treatment. I felt crap on treatment. That really led to this decision about what do I want to do with this time. They reached a point where I had a new specialist I agreed that when he said to me, you'll take treatment, I would take treatment. And that day came and he said, you do not leave this hospital without treatment today. You have six months from there being irreversible scarring of your liver that we can't save you from, we can't reverse. I said, okay, I'll take treatment. In the time between 35 and 42, by the time this happened, new drugs had become available through cancer that can be used where anecdotally being used for this condition when you didn't respond well to the treatment that normally was offered. And that treatment works. My whole life is 
pretty fantastic on that treatment. I still get fatigue. If I get a cold or a flu, I'll be down for a very long period of time because my immune system is suppressed. Apart from that, I'm pretty well on the treatment. And in 2016, I got a completely unrelated condition where I had vertigo and fell to the floor when I got out of bed. And I'd had vertigo on and off, but this was a point where I couldn't walk and I couldn't move and the room was spinning around me. So I went to the hospital, again went through a diagnostic process that was sort of up and down. And it turns out that I was the right age and the right gender and had the right history of migraines to have this condition called migraine-associated vertigo. Uh, And what, what that means is that instead of getting the headache for a migraine, I get vertigo and it's vertigo 24-7. All the time? All the time. I know that there's definitely people who have never heard the term vertigo and I'd love for you to explain what that is. If you've ever sat on a spinning chair or you've been on a roller coaster and at the end you've sort of hopped off and you feel like your body's off center and you feel like you're not quite on the ground, that's the experience of vertigo. And in this process, what you get is instead of just feeling slightly off center, I would fall to the floor knowing that the floor was stable. But in my experience, I was on a boat in an enormous storm and the ceiling was spinning, the floor was spinning. I had motion sickness because my brain believed that the whole world was spinning around me and nothing was stable. I've only had that experience a few times and it that's a really incredible way to describe it is that the whole world is maybe like you're on a boat and there's almost like no safe port. How did this affect your everyday life? You'd already been dealing with a life-threatening illness before this. How did the vertigo affect your life? So the vertigo was much more debilitating than the life-threatening condition because the vertigo isn't life-threatening. I went and started treatment for that and I still received treatment for that. What it did was for about 18 months or so, but certainly for the first eight months, I had vertigo 24-7. I would be lying in bed and I would have vertigo. Walking to the kitchen was a problem. I could just hold both the walls and sort of make it as if I was on a ship to the bathroom, but I couldn't walk very far, if at all, certainly couldn't cook for myself. So in many ways, it mirrored the experience that I'd had with the life-threatening illness treatment because the intervention treatment for that was pretty much the same. I couldn't walk a lot, couldn't care for myself, couldn't clean the house, couldn't organize food, et cetera, et cetera. So I was truly pissed off. I was genuinely really cheesed off that I'd just processed the first one and here's the second one. And that process was sort of more complex because nobody can tell that you're feeling vertigo. Whereas with the liver, they can't tell that you've got a liver condition. But anybody who's been on steroids will know that there's suddenly face changes and you have some indication that everything is a bit unwell. But both of them in general, I look pretty healthy. And these are two conditions that I've had. I know you're in a socialized medicine area, but how are you able to access the help from family, friends? It was complex, like most people's. I live in Australia. I live in Melbourne. My family's in Brisbane. 
Philips are about a three and a half hour flight from them. They didn't cope well with the diagnosis and it was invisible to them. So in many ways, I had the experience of not so helpful family members and had to find other people who were actually helpful. And I really relied on the women in my life. And it was a very big thing. I was just truly terrified of asking for help, but I had no alternative. I learned the skill of not only asking for genuine help, but also learning to receive it. And it's just uh, talking to a friend of mine who said, that, you know, saying to the effect of, you don't have to earn rest. Um, yeah, fantastic. Right? Like, I feel like there's so much shame that we feel and so much need to justify our day, our minutes, our existence. You hit that very beautifully. I did want to move back just for a second because you did experience something that a lot of the people I talked to don't experience, which is most of us have a threat to our lifestyle. We don't have a threat to our actual lives a lot of the time. Yeah. How did you prioritize when you actually are given something like a calendar with this is how yes. much time you can expect? How did you make priorities? What books you're going to read, what movies you're going to watch, what you're going to do with your time, travel, focus, work, family? How did you prioritize? Because I felt so well, it wasn't till I started feeling really sick and fatigued about 12 months before it's sort of intervention if you take treatment today had this feeling of just like anybody would feel before the experience of serious illness that I was well and I was taking yoga classes and dance classes etc so I worked out the places that I wanted to see in the world and one of them was Paris I worked out how to go live in Paris for six months and that was my dream. And I went to live in Paris for that period of time. And a whole lot of things went wrong. The apartment I leased was not the apartment that I turned up to. There was a lot of poor treatment about the Australian traveler in that process. So I ended up going to Rome and I went to New York. And those were some of the things that I did. In terms of what I wanted to do in the gift of my life, like this experience, okay, this is going to close out. What do I want to have as my experience to the best of my capacity here? I really worked on intimacy and for that was really the authentic truth with friends and other relationships. So I made this decision that I really wanted to feel connected to people and that required my vulnerability and learning the skills of being authentic, which sounds so odd to say, but we're sort of trained out of authenticity. So I untrained myself from masking and learned the skills of deep connection. That's actually something I've been working on, and I know a lot of my friends are working on, is the unmasking, the being vulnerable and not trying to spend so much of your spins on making others comfortable around you. Yeah, I had one dear friend who I felt had these skills of authenticness and was committed to them and we sort of did the work together. So two things that I could talk about that I sort of developed over that period of time is what is my sacred no? What does my true, genuine no feel like in the world? And what does my true, genuine yes? feel like in the world. Those two skills, which I now refer to as my sacred no and my sacred yes. And this is part of my work in the world. This is what I train women to feel in themselves and then speak from. 
your sacred no, you can feel in your body. I always went to my body as part of the learning of what is no, because your body's really fast at telling you what's a no, and your brain is really fast at trying to negotiate, reason, outwit your body, tell you all the reasons why no is not an acceptable answer, tell you all the reasons why somebody else's priorities or comfort is more important than yours. I had to learn this power of really standing my sacred ground. That is such a beautiful statement. I think especially as an owner of ovaries, it's something that we were taught so strongly was to even put our own personal safety behind someone else's being comfortable. That's one of the things I've had to learn in raising a daughter, teaching her to put her safety and her comfort as a priority in that social exchange. And that's one of the things that's so important to learn. Thank you for that. That's thing we were taught so much on not saying no or hedging around the no. Yes. And what happens is when you say no directly, and it doesn't have to be aggressive. For me in the office, I would say I, I don't have the capacity to do that. And so what it does is talk about the actual physical capacity. It's very clean. I'm not saying they need to do anything or be something, et cetera. I'm just saying that's not within my capacity. It's just very clean and direct. And then you have to let the other person have their experience of that because most people don't have direct communication. So they're learning the skill of being a colleague, being a manager, being a staff member of somebody who actually has the skill to set a boundary. That would even work in social situations. And that problem of like keeping that negotiation open with ask me next week, and that's going to cause you more spoons down the road. They bring up something really beautiful about vulnerability and that we almost have to get used to not being able to write our own script for how the other person's going to process it. Like there's a certain level of control you must let go of to be truly vulnerable. To be really honest, most of us experience the vulnerability, but we experience other people's vulnerability. There's nobody on this planet where you can't see when they're hedging. When somebody's hedging, you're just trained to go around them to get your agenda or to apologize for them being so uncomfortable that they have to hedge. And we spend an enormous amount of energy trying to manage other people's reactions, response to us and our reactions to them. And you spend way too many spoons in that. The directness frees up your energy to actually be able to do things that you want to do for yourself that day, even if it's Netflix. I'm a fan of that one. I just listened to an interview with Elizabeth Gilbert and Tim Ferriss, and she had talked about that. Thank you for asking. And if someone follows up with something, but it'd be really good for you, but it would be, but, yeah. but, and she said that the next line is, thank you. I realized that you'll be the first person to know if I change my mind. Yeah. Lovely. And I think for us, there is that experience of people want to check, like, what do you mean you're not well? Or do you think you'll be better tomorrow? When will you be back at the office? There's a lot of investigation questions. What they're trying to do is get to certainty about your illness and really your capacity for them. That because you're not playing by the rules of healthy, wealthy, fit young, etc., which is what is valued in our society or told us that that's what a human being ideal state is and we should all be aiming for, which is 
complete rubbish. When somebody's trying to get that level of certainty with me, there are a couple of things I would say is, I don't know when I'll have the capacity. I'm following medical advice. How do you handle the people who come in with the, if you just, or have you tried? What I say is I've really looked at everything. I've really able to manage this experience for myself. It's really about how much energy I want to spend in that. I remember because I had this liver condition very early in diagnosis, a woman walked up to me, an acquaintance colleague, and said, are you an alcoholic? And I was shocked. I was like, no, I'm not an alcoholic. Wow. And that really taught me that other people are trying to fit my illness into their narrative, trying to find a way to make sense of your experience. One of the things that were both true for me and also in many ways circumvented that conversation was to say, this is a very sacred part of my experience. This is a deep journey that I'm on. For me, I am taking the best medical advice. This is my process. And let people be confused. Let people have views about what you should do and what you shouldn't do and what treatment you should take and what you shouldn't take. I check back with my sacred no and my sacred yes. Is this a relationship I want to put energy into? And if it's yes, then look for the opening with that person so we can have an authentic conversation, which includes, I know this is really confusing for you. I can assure you I've investigated everything that I can. And drinking more green juice, doing a range of things that you've read about a healthy liver are not the things that are going to help me with this condition. It's really how I would do it with somebody I care about. I'm very direct. It's very clean. And it recognizes that they're trying to help. If it's somebody I don't care about, I have a lot of thanks or ways of disengaging, which sort of internally I go, okay, this is not a person that is safe and trusted to share this information Mm -hmm. with. So when they ask me how I am, it's I'm pretty well or I feel fatigued today, but really be very clean, not just with my words, but actually with my energy in response to them so that my boundary is backed Mm. by my energy. And it says I'm actually not open to further conversation. That's a beautiful way of dealing with it. When people are dating, they're healthy. It's hard to be authentic. It's hard to deal with the energy output. I remember very long ago dating and how exhausted I was emotionally, physically, and just trying to be authentic with the person you're just trying to get to know. How did you do this while you were dealing with all these other things? I lived alone for 20 years, really. And the liver condition brought me the gift of not being as independent and solo that I was used to and controlling my entire environment and managing my relationship. I had to learn to ask for help and I had to learn to receive it. And that was quite a significant journey. And what that did was give me the sense that actually it's safe to ask for help from certain people and they want to help and love you and they're invested in your well-being. I also am a person who has run my own business while being very unwell and put my energy into that. I'm not unwell all the time. So between crisis moments of illness or flares, 
I ran a philosophy in the pub business. I have academic background in philosophy. Philosophy in the pub is where a professional philosopher who can actually deal with adult learners, who's not going to pontificate, but actually open a genuine discussion of inquiry, comes to a pub and you have a hundred other people in a pub and they give a talk for 45 minutes and then I would facilitate Q&A and we would talk about things like robotic care in aged care or bioethics or sexual integrity and relationships and gender dynamics and philosophy and art and very big, beautiful topics. That was the business that I ran for 14 years in Melbourne. Wow, that sounds like the best job ever. (laughs) It, It was a job I created. So that's really one of my geniuses is that I know that To live a life that is filled with joy, I need to be connected to my creative joy. And that looks different on different days. And the philosophy business actually ran while I was in serious treatment and I couldn't go to the events. So facilitators that I had trained went and managed those events. And the most amazing thing about that year is when I was completely laid out, I made more money in philosophy than I had the previous years even though I was lying down for the whole year. And that was really interesting to have that experience that your life can still bloom, even if you're lying in bed. That needs to be underlined a few times. As we're taught in so much ableism and the scripts that we see in Hollywood, the things that, that are presented to us, that the second that we move from being temporarily abled to being disabled, that our lives lose meaning, that we stop creating, that it's really hard not to internalize that. It seems like the worst thing that could happen. Yeah, I think for me, I'd been running it for a long time by then. And I had developed this skill of being very clean in my communication and being quite organized. It was a model that I'd engaged the philosophers, I'd booked them, I had people that I knew could facilitate it. It's sad for me not to go to my own event and experience the joy and the community engagement. And the work that I've created can still go out and be of service. And it's really important to be connected to your creativity, whatever that is. It doesn't have to be a business. But to know that there is such beauty in your compassion that you have learned with yourself and that that is a blessing and a gift for others. You know. One of the things that you've created is this mythology corresponding to chronic illness. I'm just fascinated by it. What I did when I was very sick with the liver is I thought, okay, well, we don't know if this treatment's going to work. And they were very anxious that they'd let me go too long without treatment. So we didn't know if it was going to be irreversible and heading towards organ failure or whether they would get it literally just in time. So what I did was think, okay, well, I've got all this time. I've got some fatigue. I can't go to the markets and find my own food, but I also have enough to read or to listen to things. And I read the great myths. And in particular, the first process that I read was actually about Neptune or Poseidon because the experience of Poseidon or Neptune in Greek mythology as the god of the sea is you are out on a boat like Odysseus and you can't see land and the sea is really rocketing you about and is in control of your experience. 
as I was checking in with myself, this experience of being on the sea, not being able to see land, was by internal experience of diagnosis and chronic illness and being in such a significant treatment phase. So I started with the learning of what is it that I can find that talks to me about my experience. As I progressed, I moved on to Persephone. Persephone is a young maiden. Her mother is Demeter, the goddess of the earth, and she's playing in a field with the other goddesses. And then the earth opens up and Hades, the god of the underworld, comes and grabs her and takes her down to the underworld. That to me is the experience of diagnosis and really knowing that your life has changed in an instant. You get taken from your normal life and you get taken to the underworld. You don't have your identity anymore. You don't have all the things that were stable. Your work goes into change. Your relationships go into change. When she gets taken, we don't know a lot about her journey of being taken to the underworld. And anything we do know is written through a patriarchal language. What we know about her is she becomes queen of the underworld. This experience is talking about how that being taken from the overworld gets you enough skills that you can still be sovereign and take up really strong queen base in this underworld journey. While she's having this process, her mother, Demeter of the Earth, is looking for her, desperately searching for her in the overworld, and the Earth goes into winter because the spring is gone, the joy is gone. There's this grief for her mother. In a long, convoluted way, there's a negotiation and it's agreed that Persephone will be able to come back up to the overworld for a certain period of time. There's some tricks and some trials in that process. What's important for me about this story is that she gets taken from her life, her spring, her experience of vitality, her youth. She goes down to the underworld where time is different. She has different capacities. She learns different skills. She has a conversation with death. And she faces that and finds her raw, sovereign power. She knows how to navigate this space. She then rises to the overworld as a queen. And she engages with the overworld from this sovereign place. And this, for me, is the map and narrative of living with chronic illness. There are skills you build in the underworld of your journey, in the grit and the vulnerability, and you can rise and engage with the world, whether that's an hour a day, whether that's a week, however long that is. When you engage with the world, you can engage with it through the power and sovereignty that you have built while you've been in a flare, while you've been managing some extremely difficult experience. What are some of the things you think people can do to build those skills when we're in bed, when we're with a new diagnosis, uncertainty, or even a calendar of how much longer you might have? What are some of the things that you can do as first steps? The first step is that you have to recognize you're in a different timeline. Time is different here. There's not day after day, week after week of achievement, and you're not in a performance development process with your job, that that timeline is an overworld timeline. 
the timeline of the underworld is very different. You can spend weeks in bed thinking that nothing's happening, but actually a whole lot of internal experiences becomes available. And usually it's the experience of things that are going to truly piss you off. That's what happens in the underworld journey. So some of the things you can do is practice what would it be like if I actually said what I needed or said what I wanted to say. If I wasn't feeling that I was a burden, if I just worked with the fact for a moment, I'm not a burden in this world or to this person, what would I say? And you can start really small. You can ask somebody to come and visit you or I need some help with my groceries. And what I did was I sent an email to five women saying, I need some help with grocery shopping. It's not something I could do. If you have capacity or there are particular days or weeks, I would like to roster people so that it isn't on one person to do everything. But they're a select group of women and then people respond to that email chiming in with what they can do. So you're creating a collective around you. Some people will push back. Some people will be disappointing. That's really not a process for you. Your process is to practice asking for what you need. I love that you had a specific thing. I think that that's where we get lost a lot of times is that someone will be like, oh, you're sick. How can I help? And then that's a project manager position you're now in where you're having to think of things that someone could help and you don't even know what their capability is. It's wonderful yeah. that you're able to just say, I need this. Let's get a schedule of who could do this. And I found offering it to a collective more helpful because when you ask one person to do something, they can feel like they're going to be on the hook for this long journey or they think they're the only one supporting you. Getting visibility across a group helps people both chime in, but also not have the sense that they are the only one you're relying on. It sounds like a very wise goddess move. Ask for what you need and delegate. Persephone would absolutely be on board with this. Yeah, the other skill that she has is that she's not afraid to have the conversation with death or mortality. For me, that is also the death of identity. We often think that we're losing parts of ourselves as things progress, we lose another capacity. And there's genuine grief in that. And that grief is real and that needs to be acknowledged. And we can spend a lot of our time lamenting that or just staying in the territory of the loss. There are things you can do to acknowledge the loss. And when you have acknowledged it, you start to free up your energy. There are actually new things that are coming on board. And if you stay in the focus of your attention on what's lost, you lose some of the things that are actually opening up for you. That's beautiful. I have a friend who recovered from breast cancer and she's focused on feeling like damaged goods. Yeah. Instead of focusing on she's a badass survivor who just rocks her entire life and she's afraid of dating, of showing the vulnerability. I, I find the whole thing very fascinating on how we process ourselves, how we see ourselves versus how other people see us. I think we're so much harder on ourselves. It's one of the skills that you can learn. I have a lot of women clients who have breast cancer. And certainly for that journey, a queen of the underworld journey is really powerful because there is a conversation literally with death. 
there is this uncertainty about whether you'll return to the world. That's really what Persephone provides. She provides a narrative. She provides us a psychological story about this experience and the stages of this experience, that there is a descent to this conversation, but there is this ascent through her power and through her skills to engage with the world. In terms of the vulnerability and dating, there is something beautiful about your own capacity to be with your vulnerability. Everybody will meet times where they are wretched and messy and feeling like they don't have control of their life, whether it's getting divorced, whether it's losing a job, there is a death of the old identity. And that process can bring you into connection with much deeper parts of yourself. When you can be with yourself with your vulnerability, what happens is those emotions start to move and they move through your body and they let go. And there are other parts of you that reveal themselves. That is such an incredible point because when you are honest and vulnerable, you're giving the other person that permission to be the same back to you. Yes. At a different time, hopefully. Yes, <laughs> that's that's very fair. We're getting close to the end of the hour. You discussed your meditation practice. You talked about some incredible shows that you are very into right now or books that you're reading. I think I'd like to touch back just on the dating. And dating is tricky. So in my 30s and early 40s, I was still trying to work out how to do dating properly. By the time I'd been through both these experiences, I was not remotely concerned about how to do dating properly. What I was interested in is how to have a relationship that was real and was honest and was emotionally connecting. And that is what I went to the dating world with. So I hopped on an app while I was still quite unwell with Vertigo, did a quick picture at that time. And one of the things about that process is that I had stopped dyeing my hair and I had stopped wearing makeup. I had gray hair because I was mid-40s by this stage. And I knew that I wasn't looking for somebody or a range of people to go on dates with. I was interested in a genuine emotional equal partnership. That was what I wanted to spend my time communicating. So I did meet a man who was very attracted to my wit or very intrigued by my intellect, etc., I met him for a coffee, but I was very clear that I had vertigo. These were the conditions that I needed, and this was my suggestion for the place to meet. And I met him, and he was very engaged with me, quite taken with me. I had that experience of true vulnerability. Oh, actually, I like this person, and they like me from the beginning I've shown up authentically, so I'm not going to have to reveal more to them about being invisible. So I just continued to follow that path in the dating, turning up as myself, saying what was important and was honest, and that's the relationship I was looking for. How early did you disclose your health status? Very early. We had a text for a week, and he said, would you like to meet? I said, yes, I'd like to meet. I need to let you know that I have a vertigo condition, so... This is what I need in the setup for the date. I was very clean with it on the second and third date that I'd had these experiences of life threatening. And he was up for that. He was so engaged with the authentic truth. And I was up for somebody 
who was prepared to be authentic with me about his experiences. And we open the space and it's not for me to take care of him and him processing him stuff. And it's not for him to take care of me in my processing of stuff, but it is to be honest. And then we just help each other. I had a very bad flare with vertigo, couldn't get out of bed. He did all the cooking. He brought food to me. It was a deeply sing experience again for me as any flare is. And then I also worked out what do I need to be safe, even if this person can't do everything I need them to do. And I asked other people to also help so that it wasn't all on me. I get a lot of questions about how quickly or early would you disclose that? And it's when it's such a huge part of our lives, there's very few ways to disassociate that when we're this sick, that this is a huge part of our days and our existence. And while we don't want to not be seen as humans, it is an important part of that discussion. I knew that I developed extraordinary skill and power through the experience. I didn't turn up to the date apologizing for being that well. Oh, I was just yeah. very direct. I have a vertigo condition and I have an autoimmune condition as well which I sort of might have disclosed the second or third date, those experiences are part of my power. There is this tenacity to be with vulnerability, which means I could be with his vulnerability. All of those are actually beautiful, human, compassionate powers. It's ironic, but the messiness of us is where the beauty of our power is. And it's a stunning reframing from the feeling of being damaged as we're so conditioned to see the strength being physical and that these are our superpowers. You can bring anything to me. If you feel really messy about something, if you're triggered about something, I've sat and had a conversation with death. You're not going to be too messy for me. I'm still going to have a boundary with people, but I'm not going to say let's just talk about the superficial things so if you could just hold off for about eight months before you tell me or show up as who you really are that's just not the game i'm in thank you so much for your time i really appreciate this conversation to find out more about today's episode including show notes transcripts and more please visit invisiblenotbroken.com Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support the show by heading over to our Patreon or by sharing these episodes. We are non-advertising, so our growth is thanks to you listeners. Thank you to our host, Monica, and our guest, Michelle, for an incredible conversation. This episode was edited by me, Alice Fan. Last but not least, be kind, be gentle, and be badass.